Good evening and welcome to you all. I'm Barbara Kane. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and it's a very great pleasure to see all of you here tonight. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to acknowledge also our recognition that for many centuries this has been a place of learning and culture. It's now my very great pleasure <coughs> to welcome and introduce Professor Yishu Lu to give tonight's lecture. Um, Yishu is both is, is both the, the head of the School of Languages and Cultures and a very distinguished scholar of German literature and culture. Yishu grew up in China, obtaining her first degree from Peking University. She then went to Germany and had scholarships which took her to the University of Reconsburg, where she spent seven years becoming absolutely fluent in German and immersed in German literature and culture. She completed an MA and a DPhil there, um, and German literature and history, and then came to Australia in 1994 as a postdoctoral fellow um, and pursued a further academic career in Adelaide, in Melbourne, and then finally in Sydney, where she's currently employed, of course. Issue is internationally recognised for her research on German literature of the 18th and 19th centuries and for Sino-German encount cultural encounters, much of her work was on German cultural literature, but in the last 10 years, it's moved to include, um, in, to include China and German colonial encounters with China. Um, she's a very distinguished scholar. She's been a research fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and is frequently invited to deliver papers and address German audiences. In 2014, she received the Jacob und Wilhelm Grimm Prize from the DAAD, it's, this prize is awarded to only one scholar each year in the field of German studies um, for a scholar who works outside Germany and represents the highest recognition that Germany can offer of the research achievement of the scholars. Yishu is the first woman from Australia to get it and also the first person from China to receive this award. So that was a very impressive thing indeed. And tonight Yishu is going to talk to us on what is the newer area of her scholarship, the question about colonial encounters and visions of China within the Europe European framework issue. Good evening and thank you very much for coming to my lecture. As this is my inaugural lecture as professor of Germanic studies, I would like to take this opportunity to remind you of the long and proud tradition of this discipline at the University of Sydney. It reaches back over almost a century to the inspiring lectures on German literature by the poet Christopher Brennan. As the first woman professor of Germanic studies at this university, I would like to pay homage to my predecessors who have built up this discipline and trained many brilliant scholars. Understanding China is a challenge. It remains so at a time when China is our greatest trading partner, when we recruit Chinese students for our universities, and when Chinese dialects are spoken in our cities and towns by some two million Australians of Chinese background. Yet, for some Australians, China remains something quite alien. To take a somewhat extreme example, when the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott in February 2016 
addressed the Japan, Inst Japan Institute of International Affairs in Tokyo. He was, understandably, anxious to stress the friendship between Australia and Japan. In the course of doing so, he came to speak of China. There are some of his words. While we now have more flights from China than from any other country, and while our economy is more closely tied to China than to any other, it is still an interest partnership rather than a values one. We welcome Chinese investment here, and we trust China enough to invest heavily there too. But we aren't entirely confident that when China's interests differ from Australia's, there is a shared set of values that allow a mutually satisfactory outcome. The challenge for all of us is to work to ensure that China better appreciates the rule-based international order that's created the stability and that's made China's new prosperity possible. Keeping in mind that here a politician is delivering a speech in Tokyo, it is interesting to observe the subtext of caution, perhaps even mistrust, in the reference to China. Mr. Abbott's feeling of alienation from China finds expression in suspicion that there is no shared set of values on which trust between the two countries could be based. We are not told what such values might be, the Aussie field goal or that of a Catholic Christian. <laughs> For Mr. Abbott, the Chinese select the shared values that would enable immediate comprehension of the rules of international order, and both the Australians and the Japanese should strive to help these slow learners along. While I doubt an Australian politician or diplomat would have held the same speech in Beijing, the unease expressed here towards China, the nebulous suspicion of mutually incompatible values is nothing new in Western perceptions of China. Indeed, it is much more the rule than the exception. The eminent American scholar of Chinese history, Jonathan Spence, writes in his book of 1992, Chinese Roundabout, the following. If we are unclear today about our feelings for China, we should not worry over much. Westerners have been unclear about China since they first began to live there in any numbers and to write about the country at length. The history of our confusion goes back more than 400 years. While agreeing with the basic point made here, it is perhaps an exaggeration to speak so offhandedly of the history of our confusion, as if Western thought on China were endemically confused and incoherent. What Spence means, I think, is that if we take an aggregate of Western views on China over centuries, the result appears confused. But if we look at individual views within this mass, then they reveal themselves to be quite precise and well-defined. One reason for the effect of apparent confusion is 
that views of eminent European thinkers on China may not really be about China at all, but rather target some group close at hand in Europe, which the author wishes to scarify using imagined qualities of the Chinese as a rhetorical device. Another reason may be that the view may have been formed on the basis of very little direct knowledge of China and tailored to suit the structure of a distinctly European discourse. Clearly, such discourses have a history, and it is this history that concerns me here. Looked at more closely, the history of our confusion may resolve itself into intelligible patterns. In the 18th century, views of China become an arena for conflicts within the Enlightenment. In the 19th century, we may observe how aspects of the Enlightenment pave the way for the ideologies of colonialism. In the following, I shall review some examples of differing and changing views on China and move on to ask if there is any mass narrative we may use to structure any apparent confusion. I would suggest that ideas of China have a different historical trajectory from that other history that might have been written of factual, factual encounters between European and Chinese. At the dawn of the 18th century, we find a vision of China refreshingly free from mistrust and suspicion in the writings of Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. This mathematician and philosopher was a genuine cosmopolitan, propagating an idea of Europe against intolerance and sectarianism. Leibniz had studied in Paris, had declined the post of Vatican librarian, and had a wide network of correspondence throughout Europe. His knowledge of China was the best available to some who never left Central Europe, for he was immersed in the works of Jesuits who had a long-standing presence at the Chinese court. So I'm showing you some of the pictures of very famous Chinese, uh, Jesuits. Um, they are also household names for Chinese intellectuals. He also corresponded with those still active in the field, and the Jesuits found much to admire in Chinese culture and society, so also did Leibniz. Indeed, he saw China and Europe, for all their differences, as complementary principles of civilization. So he writes in his tract, Novissima Seneca, I believe it has come about through a unique decision of fate that the highest culture and the most advanced te technical civilization are today collected, as it were, at two extremes of our continent, namely in Europe and China. That like a Europe of the East adorns the opposite end of the earth. Perhaps divine providence is pursuing the aim of gradually leading the lands that lie between to a more reasonable way of life, while the civilized peoples at the two extremes, namely the Chinese and the Europeans, 
which are most distant from each other, are reaching out towards each other. So like this picture symbolizes, this is Matteo Ricci, and this is a Chinese official. They united with Christianity in the middle. Leibniz then enumerates the areas in which Europeans are superior to the Chinese, abstract thought, mathematics, the science of warfare, and, of course, the Christian religion. But then, the Chinese have their own areas of superiority. Certainly, they surpass us, though it is almost shameful to confess this. In practical philosophy, that is, in the precepts of ethics and politics adapted to their present life, and use of morals. Indeed, it is difficult to describe how beautifully all the laws of the Chinese, in contrast to those of other peoples, are directed to the achievement of public tranquility and the establishment of social order so that men shall be disrupted in their relations as little as possible. Leibniz opposes the stability of the vast Chinese empire to the state of Europe, divided by the hostility between Catholic and Protestant, and given to warfare between states. Moreover, in 1692, the Chinese emperor, who had a very positive view of the Jesuits, had accorded Christianity equal status with other religions. Leibniz is envisaging a harmony of the best of European and Chinese attributes under the guidance of divine providence. Following the Jesuits, who were willing to adapt Christianity to some extent to Confucian rites, Leibniz found much to admire in Confucianism. I quote, To offend heaven is to act against reason. To ask pardon of heaven is to reform oneself and to make a sincere return in word and deed in the submission one owes to this very law of reason. For me, I found all this quite excellent and quite in accord with natural theology. It is pure Christianity, in so far as it renews the natural law inscribed in our hearts. So for Leibniz, Christianity and Confucianism are actually compatible and more or less the same. Leibniz singled out another positive quality of the Chinese that later writers were to turn into a negative, namely their unquestioning obedience to superiors, to the aged, and within the family. This would later be seen by the French philosopher Montesquieu and others as suppressing individuality and inhibiting all kinds of freedom. But at the beginning of the 18th century, it was an aspect of Chinese society that Europe would do well to emulate. In the conclusion of Novissima Sinica, Leibniz doubts sit firmly on the European side. I quote, My God, let it come to pass that our joy in the christening of the Chinese is well-founded and lasting and not destroyed by imprudent religious fanatism fanatism or by internecine strife among those who have taken the mission of the apostles upon themselves or by our countrymen setting bad examples. 
the rest of the century, however, was to see Leibniz's vision of unravel. Quarrels among Christian missionaries saw the Chinese emperor forbid the religion once more. Some travelers were less than impressed by the Jesuit image of China, derived mainly from attendance at the imperial court and in contact with high <coughs> officials. The British Commodore George Anson visited Canton in the 1740s and found it an abominable place, abominable place. The Chinese officials corrupt and the merchants untrustworthy. In his published account of his travels, he refutes the Jesuit image of China in scarcing terms, I quote. And from the description given by some of these good fathers, one should be induced to believe that the whole empire was a well-governed, affectionate family, where the only contests were who should exert the most humanity and beneficence. But our preceding relation of the behavior of the magistrates, merchants, and tradesmen and canton sufficiently refutes these Jesuitical fictions. Indeed, the only pretension of the Chinese to a more refined morality than their neighbors is founded not on their integrity or beneficence, but solely on the affected evenness of their demeanor and their constant attention to suppress all symptoms of passion and violence. Anson's book became a bestseller and did sustain a negative view of China. The European image of China becomes fragmented, not as a result of Anson's one book, but rather from a general awareness that China was so vast and multifarious that many different images of it were viable. Anson's book aimed at refuting the Jesuits' positive image of Chinese society, but in fact served mainly to add another possible version of China to the Chinese enigma. Leibniz's utopian view of a China that could progress and develop in peace and harmony with Western Europe was based on the best contemporary reports of China available. There were no alternative versions of China in competition with the reports and letters of the Jesuits. As the century advanced, more information on China became available. Some, like Anson's, sharply dissenting from the glowing accounts by the Jesuits, still in circulation and very influential, especially among intellectuals. What followed after Leibniz's vision of a future harmony of East and West, with each party's best qualities contributing equally, was effectively a choice as to what reported visions of China was to be accepted. Has very much to do with differing views between Enlightenment thinkers. In fact, the Enlightenment was alive with agendas and images of China were deployed to advance or oppose widely differing views. Voltaire, who was educated by the Jesuits, adopted and enhanced their positive image of China but then used it to assail European Catholicism. He insisted on the antiquity of Chinese civilization 
at the expense of the Judeo-Christian tradition and borrowed from Montesquieu's device of inventing a naive Chinese to comment on European manners and customs for purposes of satire. In his treatise on world history, the essay on the customs and spirit of the nations, Voltaire began not with biblical antiquity, but with Chinese antiquity, a provoking innovation that shocked his readers. In his philosophical dictionary, he summed up what he had written often elsewhere. I quote, The constitution of the empire is in truth the best that exists in the world, the only one that is entirely founded on paternal power, the only one in which a provincial governor is punished if, when he leaves offices, he has not received praise from those he has governed the only one that has instituted prizes for virtuous conduct, whilst everywhere else the laws are limited to punishing crimes, the only one that has made its conquerors adopt its own laws. Rodin's agenda is to have in his image of China a frame of reference in which there is always a press alternative to the abuse he castigates in Catholic Europe. In the same article of the Philosophical Dictionary, he concedes that the Chinese common people are no more virtuous than the French, and they are full of prejudices and superstitions, and that Chinese sciences lags behind that of Europe. But when it comes to public institutions, Voltaire's freely improvised version of China is unfailingly superior to its European counterparts. Given the influence of thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was to have, uh, which was to have on later generations, it is surprising to find that in the 1300 pages of his writings on society and politics, China is mentioned just once, and this is highly polemical context. In Rousseau's discourse on the sciences and the arts, he pursues the agenda of providing, of proving that literate, that literate civilization has corrupted great nations and sunk them in decadence. After citing various examples of societies brought down by their own culture, he happens on China. I quote, There is an immense country in Asia in which literary culture is the path that leads to the highest office of state. If the sciences purified human behavior, if they taught men to spill their blood for their native land, if they incited men to be more courageous, then the peoples of China ought to be wise, free, and invincible. But there is no vice to which they are not prey, no crime which is not common among them, neither the wisdom that is claimed for their laws nor the multitude of inhabitants within this vast empire, empire were able to protect it from subjection by the ignorant and crude Manchus. So what use to it were all of China's scholars? What benefit did China derive from heaping honors upon them? Would it not to be inhabited by slaves and low lives? 
Also gave China exactly the same treatment as ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, and Byzantium, as if there were no difference between these empires. Empires tend to decline and fall with time. For the purpose of Rousseau's discourse, they fail because of their own literacy. For the Enlightenment in general, the Chinese examination system could seem superior to the widespread practice in Europe of simply buying or inheriting offices with no criteria of fitness or expertise. In terms of Rousseau's agenda, literacy is a primary evil. Thus, while Voltaire could find no fault with the institutions of the Chinese state, Rousseau could find nothing good about them. Looking at the whole context of Rousseau's condemnation of China, it is clear that China was simply not his primary target. For Voltaire, the Chinese Empire in 1750, the year of Rousseau's discourse, was clearly not lying in ruins, but to suit Rousseau's agenda, it had to be. As I have said, Rousseau was not really interested in China. Nowhere else in his writings does he enlarge on the subject, whereas for Voltaire, his own selectively positive version of China is a constant point of reference. But what Rousseau had written became very influential. The myth of Chinese decadence had no single point of origin, but the tenor of Rousseau's rhetoric was to recur in subsequent subsequent decades. It is characteristic of the Enlightenment that agendas could clash for their own sake, especially if their subject matter was non-verifiable, as was largely the case with images of China. If we look to Germany, then it is no surprise that Voltaire's friend and sometime host, King Friedrich II of Prussia, should have imitated his mentor of having an imaginary Chinese comment on European customs and institutions. Thus, in 1760, he circulated a satirical pamphlet entitled Report of Fei Hu, A Mystery of the Emperor of China in Europe. The text tells us very little about Friedrich's image of China, rather the papacy in particular and the practices of the Catholic Church in general are held up to ridicule by the Protestant king. Once more, the image of China is pressed into the service of an agenda that has nothing specifically Chinese about it. But from Germany also comes one of the most negative and most influential images of China to emerge from the Enlightenment, namely the violent condemnation in Johann Gottfried Herder's ideas towards a philosophy of human history, a massive work published between 1784 and 1791. Herder had obviously read Leibniz, the Jesuits, and Voltaire, and his discussion of China begins by conceding some of those positive aspects of Chinese society in their accounts. The absence of hereditary nobility, the institution of a nobility of merit, 
the role of respect for elders and superiors in Chinese social organization, the religious tolerance that enables the peaceful coexistence of various sects. For no apparent reasons, he then turns on the Chinese and blasts them with all the rhetoric he commands. The Chinese emperor, so heard, is an embalmed mummy painted with hieroglyphs and shrouded in silk. Its inner circulation is that of a hibernating animal. For Herder, genetics and climate determine cultures, and the Chinese are descended from Mongols, one of the ugly peoples, to use his word, about whom nothing good could be said. From then on, Herder's diatribe spares nothing Chinese at all. His rhetoric is reminiscent of Rousseau's, but whereas Rousseau limited himself to one paragraph in his entire work, Helder's diatribe extends over several pages, attacking the Chinese character, the Chinese language, the Chinese script, with so much vitriol that it is hard to take it seriously today. Scholars have attempted to explain Helder's fanatical denunciation of everything Chinese, pointing out that the Jesuits had been de-established by the Pope in 1773, not long before Herder began to write his ideas. It may thus have seemed opportune to this Protestant pastor to be rid of the Jesuit heresies on China once and for all. But I believe Herder had one clear agenda, which is to depict the Germanic peoples as being close to nature in their development and authentic. For this, he needs a complete antithesis, and he made China embody all that is artificial and false. In short, the Germanic peoples have as their destiny to be young and progressive. Does China have a choice but to be senile and stagnant? Helder had derived his ammunition from the destruction of everything Chinese, for the destruction of everything Chinese from the writings of the Jesuits, but he has turned everything on its head. His extraordinary demolition of China would probably have been forgotten were it not that the drift of his thinking accords with the intellectual climate of the late 18th century. For Herder writes, I quote, Ancient China on the edge of the world has stood still in time in its half-Mongol constitution like a ruin from a past age. Whatever historical forces may be at work, and Herder is by no means clear what this may be, they have bypassed China and left it isolated in a state of childish slavery immune to progress. This figure of thought was to find an echo in the image of China that later appears in Hegel, Germany's most prominent philosopher of the 19th century. I do not suggest here that Herder invented this image of China. Rather, he has exaggerated much that was being said of China by others towards the end of the 18th century. In this sense, his books were a symptom of the changing intellectual climate not a revolutionary invention. The 18th century had begun with Leibniz's vision of a golden complementarity of East and West, 
and of human progress guided by divine providence. By the century's end, little remains of this optimistic synthesis. The issue of Chinese despotism, first raised by Montesquieu, bulked larger and the century drew to a close because individual liberty had become a foremost preoccupation in Western Europe. The unchanging quality of Chinese society was now found to be in opposition to the purely secular idea of progress that become dominant. Once most thinkers of Western Europe had subscribed to this idea, then China, through a process of othering, was found to be in a state of stagnation. As the 19th century began, it seemed to be China's turn to embody all the negatives. A further impetus to this trend came from Lord McCartney's embassy to the Chinese emperor. I have a very beautiful image from the time here. In 1793 and 94, the embassy failed to secure the treaties with China on access and trade that were its goals, but it was widely published throughout Western Europe. One of the books that emerged from the expedition John Burroughs' Travels in China of 1804 was a bestseller and did much to confirm the negative image of China that was now dominant. Burroughs' book showed China as a stagnant and regressive despotism. His account enjoyed the advantage that had previously been that of the Jesuits' report. He had actually been there for some time, and had been able to observe Chinese society from the humble workers to the imperial court. Whilst Burroughs' book claimed to be wholly empirical, it did contain many distortions of facts and false conjectures, but no one was in a position to refute Burroughs' claims as China still remains largely closed to European merchants and travelers, people who are interested in Burroughs, I think, a grandchild of one of the members of this delegation wrote a book in 2012 just to point out how many mistakes Sparrow made. But at the time, 1804, his book was a great success. The philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel has become famous or notorious for placing China outside the movement of world history. I have not the time here to attempt to explain the Hegelian system in detail, but let me quote the passage in which this image of China is at its most explicit. History must begin with the empire of China, for it is the most ancient state of which history makes report. In early times, we see China develop into that condition in which it remains today. Far and there is as yet no opposition between objective being and subjective motion, so there is no possibility of change. And the static, static quality that constantly reappears replaces that which we would term the historical. China and India lie, as it were, outside world history representing the preconditions of those factors whose coming together is necessary for history to be, 
to begin its living process. This is not much easier to follow in German. <laughs> Hegel uses history in two senses, and this may be confusing. Initially, it is used in the conventional sense of human records of the past. Later, it signifies a dynamic and quite abstract, abstract, abstract process by which the word spirit, Weltgeist, attains full self-awareness. The word spirit may attain its full potential only in the Christian Germanic world. China, in Hegel's terms, has been frozen in a state before the dynamic of world history begins so that the Chinese cannot develop that reflective subjectivity that manifests itself as freedom. Needless to say that Hegel never visited China, nor did he wish to. His vision of world history was so emphatically Eurocentric that all the possibilities for the unfolding of creative subjectivity that were given in Europe must needs be lacking in China. Hegel enumerates and explains these deficiencies. Like Helder, Hegel was thoroughly acquainted with the Jesuit reports on China and reproduces materials from them in his account, including extracts from early Chinese history. But for Hegel, history came to a stop in China before it had really begun, and thus progress there is impossible. Hegel's arguments are not only secular, but they have in common with images of China in the Enlightenment that they are immune to any questions of verification. The highly abstract motions of the word spirit took precedence over any merely empirical events. Hegel's influence on 19th century German thought was enormous. He also went so far to say, I quote, it is the inevitable destiny of the Asiatic empires to be subjugated by the Europeans, and China will also one day have to submit to this fate. Let colonialism begin. <laughs> In fact, the 19th century came to be dominated by the secular idea of progress that had taken shape in the later part of the 18th century, and from which China was just firmly excluded, as it was from Hegel's metaphysical version. Hegel's lectures on the philosoph his philosophy of history were published posthumously in 1837. China was still close to the West, with the exception of trade in Canton. But in 1839, the first opium war begins, and as its conclusion, there are five treaty ports, and the image of China and the intact entity is shattered. Karl Marx, a Hegelian with a difference, wrote of China three years before the beginning of the Second Opium War in 1856. I quote, the principal precondition for the preservation of the old China was a complete isolation from the world. As England has brought this to a violent end, decay must set in as certainly as with an Egyptian mummy that has been carefully preserved in a hermetically sealed coffin as soon as it comes into contact with fresh air. 
The question is now, after England has brought about the revolution of China, how this revolution's backlash will, with time, affect England itself and via England or Europe. It is interesting that Marx takes up once more the image of China and the mummified corpse that had been used by Helder a good 70 years previously. For Marx, Asia has to be exploited by capitalism in order to be brought out of its stasis. On the other hand, Marx does condemn European colonialism as unpardonable aggression. During the Enlightenment, vulnerability had not been part of the image of China. Up to the First Opium War, it had been thought that China could defend itself. Thereafter, China appears as prey at the mercy of predators. Stasis equates to senility, and the colonial mindset sees no chance of regeneration. The new Western image of China is that of a helpless victim to be exploited piecemeal. After the Second Opium War, the Western image of China could scarcely sink lower, and yet in the area of German interest in China, a significant change of image did occur. Germany had no colonies anywhere before 1885. It was to acquire one colony in China, 1897, the port of Qingdao in Shandong. But before this, a colonial mentality was well established in the German print media in anticipation of a widely extended German empire. With China now open to Western travelers, many German scientists and engineers traversed the vast land on the lookout for opportunities for exploitation. From today's perspective, the most interesting of these was Ferdinand von Richthofen, who explored much of China in the years 1868 to 1872. The vigor and lucidity of his contributions to German geographical writings on China may be seen to affect a paradigm shift within the genre. For his vision of China, this places a myth of stagnation and senility in favor of a visionary and industrialized future in which China is full of useful promise. It is as if he could not see a Chinese landscape without at once envisaging a railway network to exploit its industrial potential, especially its coal reserves. Richthofen saw that China was ripe for industrial revolution the only question being which European nation would provide it with the necessary external stimulus to set the whole process going. Richthofen recognizes the enormous potential in Chinese labor, something his con- contemporaries largely ignored in their search for mineral depo- deposits. In one report from the province Shanxi, Richthofen praised the hospitality of the nomadic tribes, but continues, I quote, yet one glance suffices to perceive the superiority of the industrious Chinese, although the stage at which this race has come to a halt on its previous march towards progress is indeed a low one. Here we may recognize Richthofen and the reader of Hegel 
fully conversant with the myths of China have succumbed to the stasis in the distant past. But Richthofen's innovation is to see that this stasis need not to be permanent, that China was ripe for a process of industrial modernization, needing only appropriate investment and know-how from the West. Richthofen's vision of a fully modernized and productive China was not to become a reality for another 100 years. But this image of China stands out from the many accounts of China's stagnation and immobility in the late 19th century as one pointing to China's future. To summarize what my lecture has been about, I suggest that what one scholar has termed a history of our confusion with regard to Western perspectives on China can be seen to be made up of many different images that are quite precise in themselves because they embody clear agendas. In general, these agendas have more to do with European controversies than with any Chinese reality. If we still look for any common thread, any master narrative to structure successive visions of China, then I will suggest that we take changes in the idea of progress. At the beginning of the 18th century, what Leibniz sees as the best of Chinese culture and civilization complements what is best in Europe. Divine providence will propel both halves of the enlightened world forward in harmony for the betterment of humankind. As the century progresses, various alternative visions of China become prominent. In some of these, Chinese society appears less than ideal, subject to tyranny, frozen in time. In parallel to this, progress becomes much less a function of divine providence than a quite circular process, driven by technological advances, social upheaval, and the thirst for individual liberty. In this perspective, China no longer complements Europe at its vital best, but drifts into becoming its negative opposite, static, mummified, marginalized. Thus, in the early 19th century, China is stranded somewhere outside the dynamic of history. A proof of this is then apparently given by the ease with which the first empire is defeated in the two opium wars. After the second, China appears ripe only for dismemberment and colonization by European powers. One German colonialist visionary, Ferdinand von Richthofen, is then able to reverse the image of China as mere prey waiting passively for predators. For he sees not only the enormous mineral wealth awaiting exploitation in China, but he sees also, and more significantly, the great potential in Chinese labor and creates a powerful image of an industrialized China to come, granted one needing the stimulus of colonial powers to come about. In all these alternative versions of China, we cannot help but see the dominance of Western concepts over whatever Chinese reality 
they may claim to encompass. The 19th century sees an enormous growth in the amount of empiric knowledge of China available to Western thinkers. But the transition from an idealist ideology to a colonialist one seems scarcely affected by this. Again and again, we perceive Western thinkers apply a very small number of concepts to encompass the vast diversity and complexity of China with more than just a touch of intellectual arrogance. In conclusion, I suggest that for as long as the Chinese enigma is seen as yielding to a few basic concepts, it will remain intractable. We may smile at some of the simplifications current in the middle of the 18th century, but we should also ask, are we really any further advanced today? Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you two very much for an absolutely wonderful lecture, which was kind of incredibly clear in its structure and combined wonderful detail and showed in a fantastic way, the hermetically sealed way in which the Europeans viewed China, even in the 19th century when there's alternative evidence available to them. So I think it was, it was an altogether excellent. And we have time for a few questions. Thanks, Yishu. That was fantastic. And my favourite... Um, aspect of it is the way you created an intellectual genealogy for Tony Abbott that linked him with <laughs> Rousseau and Hegel. But I do have a question, and because you're a professor of um, German, uh, do you find when you're looking at the sources uh, that the, is there something different in how in the 19th century, let's say, when we do have a sense of Germany and Prussia, that, that, that there's a different way of seeing China, or is it a broadly European discourse? Uh, from the materials I have looked at, it's definitely European. You know, national differences or philological differences do not play a very big role. Maybe in borrowing of metaphors, I mean, Hegel obviously has read Herder, but, and Richthofen obviously had read Hegel. So we can see a certain uh, movement of the same metaphors through the writing, but they the thinking, I think, is actually European. Hi, Yishu. Thanks a lot. Um, did you see any differences between uh, people who had understood, who spoke, speak Chinese or understand Chinese and those who don't? Yes. Or were there any people who actually did understand Chinese? What were those differences then? Well, the main differences uh, to me was that people who speak Chinese are more interested in specific topics. They don't make general generalizations. They don't make big statements about what China is, what Chinese is. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thinkers I have studied now, actually to create a framework for some of my other research, they don't speak Chinese, but they are very widely read. They read everything available. I mean, they are not ignorant, but they make their choices, and they make choices because they have agendas. And very often, their agenda has nothing to do with China. They, ha they, are, they are in discussions, disputes with their 
other European intellectuals about other questions. So you're saying that there weren't any uh, in, any European intellectuals who were that you studied who were actually in dialogue with with Chinese intellectuals, or um, and nobody who actually spoke Chinese. Oh, there are there are many okay. of them, especially uh, in the late 19th century. There are a lot of sinologists, and it's in France, in France, many scholars did speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. Their interests were more in the classical canons. They did a lot of translations. They did not engage in those big picture debates. Okay. Uh, rather than being too harsh on European observers, I wonder whether another explanation could be the internal complexity and heterogeneity among you know, different parts of China. Um, I forgot the name. There's one. You no. Know, British observer who, who derived his, his observation in China based on his interactions with Canton traders. Mm-hmm. And he said that that you know, really falsified all the observations of Matthew Ritchie. But they were diff- interacting with different classes of Chinese. One is the Mandarin scholars in Beijing mm-hmm. versus you know, the um, very worldly uh, traders, merchants uh, in Canton. So you You'd expect them, you know, to to behave, you know, in any way similar. Mm-hmm. So, so would would that be an explanation that, you know, it's very difficult for any foreigners to grasp the the widespread of, you know, spectrum of complexity within China, rather than the fact that they are just, you know, reading Europe into China. But that is very difficult for them to, you know, generalize from their reading of, you know. The, the parts of China that they, they observed? Well, it is, it is certainly a question of how much they immerse themselves into scholarships on China and how much they read and what they read is certainly a question. Of the thinkers I have studied, I, can, I cannot tell you how much Rousseau has read about the Jesuits' reports. I don't know because he wrote... He wrote heaps of stuff, but it's only one paragraph on China. But I can tell you that Hegel has read almost everything available about China. Maybe not some of the tribal literature because it was considered to be popular, so not the test of intellectual, but all the serious sources in French, in German, in Latin, he did read. So, of course, there is always a limit of how much has been written about China and how much people can access. One one more. Thank you for your lecture. If European philosophers projected European deficiencies onto China, as you argue, would Chinese philosophers have done the same to Europe? And would that then have influenced the Europeans? Oh, that is a very good question. I can, what I can say is when McCartney went to see the Chinese emperor on behalf of George III, the emperor you know, received him. There were some discussions where he should kneel and so on and so forth and give him a letter to King George. And in the letter she said, we don't need anything you brought to us. We don't want to trade. We have everything. So, um, in a way, I mean, it does symbolize 
up until maybe late 18th century, China did see itself as the center of the world. It's not really interested in engaging with the outside world. So when Chinese intellectuals started to study the Western world, it was under a condition where they actually already, the China was already start to be divided by Western powers. So the background of their studying of the Western Europe is very different than the time when Jesuits went to China and Leibniz envisaged China. Leibniz Europe was actually just finished a 30 years war, so it was a really bad place to be. That's why he's so impressed by public tranquility. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll thank you once again for an absolutely wonderful lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And have a good